This episode is brought to you in part by D6 Conference, a pivotal event for family ministry dedicated to nurturing discipleship based on Deuteronomy 6. Empower your ministry team and family by joining us. Register now at d6conference.com. This special episode of The Calling is brought to you by CT Creative Studio in partnership with The Witnesses Joy and Justice Conference, taking place October 4th through 5th in Chicago, Illinois. For more information, go to joyandjustice.com. My hope and prayer is that people leave this conference with a sense of catharsis. Whatever they had inside them that they feel they couldn't let out before, they can let it out here. Hey everybody, Richard Clark here, CT Creative Studio, which is who I work for now. Me too. Oh, and Joy Beth is here, by the way, has resurrected the calling for this moment to present to you a special episode in partnership with The Witness. We wanted to sit down with Jamar Tisby and Adam Keeley. Jamar Tisby is the president of The Witness and Adam Keeley is the creative director. And together, along with a whole bunch of other people, they're working on a conference called the Joy and Justice Conference. The Joy and Justice Conference is this really awesome conference in Chicago that is essentially featuring a bunch of The Witness personalities, a lot of good speakers. This is basically a a conference that is centering black voices from the black diaspora is how they put it. And, And it's for black Christians, but everyone is welcome. So we talk a little bit about the tension there, right? In this interview. Man, it felt like old days, Joy Beth. <laughs> I ho- I'm really excited to put this out because I think that people who happen to be still subscribed to The Calling and that are listening to all this ten are of them. all 10 of them. <laughs> Come on! It happens to be quite a lot, actually. I think they're going to really be excited to hear this. We've actually interviewed Jamar Tisby in the past. If you go back and listen to that interview, a lot has changed with Jamar Tisby and with The Witness, including the name. It used to be called Reformed African American Network, and now it's called The Witness. It's a totally different organization in a lot of ways, and in a lot of ways, it's very similar. But we talk about sort of the journey from that Facebook group, which was centered around establishing community for people who felt like they were in a sort of wilderness, to create a conference for people to sort of feel that community. What is something that you came out most excited about for the conference? I'm really excited about the content. I'm really excited about hanging out with everyone, spending more time with Adam and Jamar if they're around. I was telling them the conference is like the best value. This is just like a really basic answer, (laughs) but my wife and I are going to this conference and here's why. It is $100 until October 5th, at least. It is $100 and you get a barbecue dinner. What? And you get free childcare. For the whole conference. That's amazing. That is a date weekend, my friend. (laughs) We are so in. I got to say, I had a lot of fun with this interview. It was very fun. Adam is not just creative director of The Witness. He's also a comedian on the side, like a working, touring comedian. That's amazing. He does a lot of comedy work, improv. After the mics were off, we talked a lot about comedy and improv because and I was just started with me going I'll just do it as a hobby but then I like nerded out a lot with him it's also just fun to see him and Jamar interact because Jamar is like extremely bookish and Adam Uh is actively not Uh, and I was felt like I was balancing them in some way. Uh, and there, there was Richard Clark in the middle. Exactly. As usual. 
And we talked about what it feels like to feel like an outsider, what it feels like to feel like you don't belong somewhere and what it, what it means to create a space where that belongs and how that can even kind of get away from you, which is what happened with the Facebook group. That idea of just starting a Facebook group, no big deal, right? Well, it changed the course of Jamar Tisby's life forever. <laughs> that was not something he anticipated. So will this conference change the course of their life? Who knows? Probably. Probably. Will it change the course of your life? Why don't you go to joyandjustice.com and register to find out. Joyandjustice.com. Sign up now. Here's our interview. Adam, on your Twitter profile, it says you're a three times Starbucks <laughs> gold member. Yeah. And I yeah. want to know why that's so important to you to be on your yeah. profile. You know what? Because I asked Joy Beth, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, why is that? Like, what is that? And she explained you get extra shot. Right. And, Birthday drinks. And she also shows. bragged that she's been one far longer than you yeah. have. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. I'm the LeBron of Starbucks. She might be Michael Jordan. But wow. That seems right. <laughs> it's a big deal to me because I just want to let people know how I'm moving around. Mm -hmm. I was like trying to find a nugget that was like really descriptive of me while also not being descriptive of me uh, at all. Something that means a lot to me and then also doesn't mean anything. That has like no real weight to it. Right, exactly. <laughs> that I'm incredibly prideful about, but then it's also completely <laughs> vapid. Yeah. Just the fact that I've like maintained a really active relationship <laughs> with Starbucks and then I'm always in there. I was just like, yeah, so now you know me and don't know me at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really curious though, like why you haven't gone the small game, you know, the independent coffee mm. shops. You, you're still a, a, a coffee chain guy. That came to my mind too. Yeah. You know what? I think it's because I'm not a complex coffee drinker. You know what I mean? So I think like a lot of times the complaints that you hear is about like, oh, their coffee's not as good as this place or whatever. But it's like, I'm just getting like drip coffees and like chai lattes and these like really easy things. But I think I move around a lot. I travel so much. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I like to. Consistency. I like to, I like to accumulate things from, I think, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I support some small shops, but if I can get there and Wi-Fi is going to be good and I can email somebody if I'm dissatisfied, I'm there. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I was I was curious is is there a particular place that you guys have in your life like felt the most known or understood? You know, weirdly, it's going to sound weird to a lot of people, but moving down south for me has been an extended pilgrimage. I was always cognizant of racial dynamics being a black man in America, but it wasn't until I moved down south that I really started to get a sense of the history. And one of the things that is tricky is not to exceptionalize the South, particularly for race. There's racism everywhere, literally everywhere across the country. I don't think the South stands out for that, but I do think what is different for me has been the physicality of it and the geography of it. You know, when I'm teaching Sunday school, James Meredith, the first black person to integrate the University of Mississippi is sitting in my Sunday school class or my commute to the University of Mississippi is literally through cotton fields, which as we speak right now are blooming. And so how can you not think of that history? But even beyond race, I think what living in the South, the deepest of Souths, the Delta has taught me is in many ways, this place is, is, is a microcosm 
of the nation as a whole. What I see here, I see played out in different ways across the nation, politically, religiously, culturally, all of those things. So it's a place where I've constantly felt out of place, not being from here, but at the same time, it's a place that's helped me understand other places. It's helped you understand other places. Do you feel like it's a place where you feel understood or does that matter less to you? In the Delta, both on the Mississippi side and the Arkansas side, it's got the highest concentration of black people in either state. So in a sense, racially, I feel very at home because my town is 75% black. When I lived in Jackson, that was 80% black. And so when I'll go to some other places like driving through Missouri or parts of Illinois or you name it, there's a lot less people of color there. And so that's a little bit stark for me, but I'm not exactly a city guy, but the closest big city is a ways away. So I wouldn't mind (laughs) living a little bit closer to a big city because I travel a lot. I podcast and use technology and things of those natures that nature that is a little bit more accessible in a bigger urban area. Yeah, Jamar's not a big city guy. We were in New York and he's here. <laughs> I was like, I don't even want to walk around with you, Doug. <laughs> right it now. just takes me a little while to adjust. Yeah. That's all. Like, I don't know about this Uber. I've been putting this on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> That was true then. It's been a while. I think moving to Chicago to college and plugging into the comedy scene, I was like, oh, like I have a tribe of people that I'm like cut from a similar cloth. I hadn't really experienced that. I think being a comedian, you're like a very specific type of person, equal parts, intelligent the only thing you are is, is more lazy than you are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of these kind of like rare obsessed with culture and then, you know, all these kinds of weird things and just going on bit tangents, you know what I mean? For 15, 20 minutes. And so doing that was a, a big time. And, and the second part, I guess, coincidentally, is just being a part of the witness team. I came a part of the witness team to do a, a tour, to work on a tour. And during the midst of that tour, I think we were in D.C. at the time. And we were it was like after a show, we were all just sitting around kind of talking about our journey of faith and our upbringings. And I think it was such a healing moment for me. You know, when you feel alone in your faith journey, it's tough to keep going because you just feel like no one can understand you. And you just, what is the importance of like our faith life then to be understood? <laughs> like that's, you know what I mean? A goal. So that was like a really important night for me and a really healing night that sort of kind of changed the trajectory of how I moved artistically and professionally actually from that night. In what, in what sense did you feel alone in your faith journey. We talk about it a lot. When you look at the inception of where African-Americans kind of have gone from since 2012 to now due to like shootings and things of that nature. I grew up in a Southern Baptist context, very evangelical. I went to very evangelical university. I I was in a mega church. You saw a lot of the pillars the quote unquote pillars, man-made pillars of, of my faith, sort of like not having my back, I felt like, or not understanding what I where I was coming from. So I was like, oh, what does this mean? These people or the, this particular institution in this way, everything that I've sort of built my faith around. And so now that it's being removed, what it, what does that mean? I have to kind of re-figure out what that meant. And so to talk to people that were on the same journey f- from different seats, but on the exact same journey at the exact same time was really, really refreshing. It does make me think 
the the thing that neither of you gave it as an answer was the church. Why is that? Man, it's a lot for what Adam said, you know, sort of in broad sweeping terms. We're only a couple of generations in to integration, legal integration. It was the late 60s, even into the 70s, when a lot of the big flagship white churches, the first church this and the first that downtown, they wouldn't even allow black members, right? So that's 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 within people's lifetimes who are still breathing today. But we we have grown up in a society where certain forms of legal racial segregation are no longer the rule of the day. And so there's increasing numbers of us black Christians, I mean, who have been in predominantly white spaces, including church settings, similar to Adam. I I didn't grow up Christian necessarily, but when I became a Christian, it was in a lot of white evangelical settings that I found myself, whether youth group or church, you know, there there's there's really good things about it. Some some lifelong friends that I've made, some really foundational spiritual truths that I've learned, but at the same time there was always a racial and a cultural gap. That all came to a head in the 2010s, first, you know, Trayvon Martin and then Mike Brown and Black Lives Matter and then on and on and on with these human beings become hashtags, the 2016 election, Charlottesville, Emmanuel 9, you name it, right? And that highlighted for the entire nation, but also for the church, the racial divisions that have always been there, but sort of brought them back to the surface more starkly in a, in a way you just couldn't ignore and revealed just how big that gap was. So in the past few years, especially the church, unfortunately, has been a, a place of pain and mistrust and difficulty for, for me and I think a lot of others. Yeah. And I think like one thing that Jamar just said, I think it's really important and I think is a big misconception is like, I loved my church upbringing. I loved my youth group. Some of my friends some of those people are still some of my best friends. I went to a large evangelical university that I personally enjoyed my experience there. You know what I mean? So a lot of times I think when they hear the conversations and the things we're talking about, they think there was like all of this like secret animosity the whole time. And there wasn't. And I think that's why there was when you look across the country, that's why there's so much pain coming from, you know, black Christians, because it was all good until this other part of us was needed addressing and wasn't willing to be addressed. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's a infinitely more heartbreaking yeah. story. <laughs> right, right. What you just said. Like the fact that it wasn't like that it was a ticking time bomb or right. something. Mm-hmm. It was it was like the at the moment where it really mattered, there was a little bit of a, a a lot of depending on your perspective and who we're talking about, but there was a failure to sort of like you said have your back. There's a whole lot of of nuance and I think misconceptions out there. I think for a a certain type of person, they'll listen to a discussion like this and be like, well, duh, you should have known. Like, like you're right on, around white evangelicals. Of course, this is how they were going to respond when, you know, racial tensions flared, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there, there's definitely a point to that. If you look at the history, it would certainly indicate a lack of understanding rather than an abundance of understanding. But I think it's also important to bear in mind that white Christians were, were making sincere overtures at Racial reconciliation, integration, equality, all of those things. So, and I don't think it was duplicitous. I don't think people said one thing and meant another. I think what happened is they didn't realize what it took, nor did many white evangelicals realize, particularly politically, just how different black and white people were and still are. And then when that starts to come to a head with like criminal justice reform and talking about police brutality and and talking about elections and things like that, then you get down to the real nitty gritty of just how different we are. 
Jamar, the last time I had you on the calling, you mentioned this briefly, just the the fact of, and and your description of it kind of haunted me where you talked about your finger hovering over the Facebook group creation button basically (laughs) and thinking like what is this going to do to my life and the reason that haunted me and I even related with you in that moment it reminds me of just the stakes involved in a low stakes activity Mm -hmm. that you take where like creating a Facebook group is not is not a big deal all things considered but it became this thing that completely changed the course of your life and many other lives and in fact it may even include people like me like i remember that period that you guys just described i was obviously having very different interactions with those issues but one of the interactions was just recognizing my own problems and reformed african american network which is what you guys were called at the time was a big part of that it was a bit it was a big motivator for me to sort of look at myself all of that to say i'm i'm curious like first of all adam were you around during this time no mm-mm. when did you become involved in the witness just it's just over i guess it's almost been 2 years now okay. maybe yeah. cuz it was like a we did a we did a past the mic tour and then we've been planning the conference Got you it. know which will be in a couple of a couple of weeks and we've been planning that for about a year so i guess about 2 years so this question is for jamar jamar how did that facebook group sort of defy your expectations how did it delight you and then in what ways did it disappoint you? I'm not sure what I expected. What what I set out to do was to help connect like-minded Christians, particularly black Christians. At the time, it was particularly in these reformed and evangelical circles. And there's never been a large racial or ethnic minority presence in the United States in these circles, but particularly for African Americans or black people. So I I wanted to to say, hey, you're not alone and we may be spread out, but there are other people who believe the same things, are passionate about the same things. So we just started like sharing posts from Christians about race. This was 2011. It wasn't happening that much. I mean, it was rare to find anything explicitly about race. It was just that. What what I didn't anticipate was the national landscape and the national conversation about race changing so much and so quickly. The, the way I've characterized the turn is from racial reconciliation to racial justice. And that's particularly in the church. So when we first got started as RAN, it, the conversation was always about getting people together, getting black and white people or, or people of color and white people in the same churches, multi-ethnic church movement, all of this stuff. And then over the course of time, it became abundantly clear that that's not enough. It's not enough just to be in the same spaces. We need to share power, power in all kinds of ways, politically, economically, institutionally. And when those kinds of conversations came up, and particularly with Black Lives Matter and what that evoked, I mean, it's reminiscent of the way people responded to Black power in, in the 1960s and 70s. It was just this lightning rod for controversy, and it revealed a lot of what people really thought about race in America today. So I just didn't expect that conversation to happen, nor for us to really get caught in this crossfire with Christians, you know, calling us liberal and Marxist and now critical race theorists and all of this stuff is like, what, what is this? The community itself, though, like the Facebook group, is it safe to say that you you wanted that to be a kind of like safe space definitely and and we actually we had a we started with a public facebook page which we still have but we had to create a private facebook page based on our podcast past the mic which is another thing i didn't expect i started that a few years ago we had to create a private facebook group where we actually you know screen all of the people in there even though now it's up to several thousand people we wanted that because 
when you're out on the public page, any troll could just hop in and completely derail a comment thread or a thought. And so now we have this private Facebook page where we we try to see, okay, are you are you in here just to troll or do you really want to learn? And we have monitors. Shout out to our our, our Facebook page monitors who monitor the conversation and make sure that it centers Black people and is not draining us. And that stuff has been an evolution, right? Like you've had to implement those things over the course of the group. And as someone who's been a part of that group, I know that you also created this other group called Pass the Mic 101, which is essentially for people like me who who don't really know what they're talking about, have endless basic questions. <laughs> they need a place to ask. Those I don't questions. know if that's you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think I think it's hard for people who are not in a minority of some sort to understand how exhausting these questions are because we're getting them not just from you, an individual, but from this other person. So we created PTM 101 for folks who are. We want you here, and we want you to be on this journey. But you're at step A. <laughs> and, you know, here's an environment where you can ask those questions. Once you've gotten some of this basic background stuff, come on and join this other group that we have. And then beyond that, you can become an advocate and an ally and, and be more outspoken and, and take action uh, to create equity. But it's a process. And the questions to get in the group are really hard. <laughs> what are they now? I it's feel like, like I, I got the questions from in. Walking Dead. It's how many zombies have you killed? <laughs> How many people have you killed and why is the questions? <laughs> the art of the unexpected. See? No, they're so intense. I was working. I was like, oh, I sh-, you know, I should do this. And I was like, I've been black my whole life. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then, and I'm struggling. I'm like, Ugh. it's <laughs> like, it's way. like, you know, what's your definition of racism or, <laughs> you know, that can be a tricky one. That's <laughs> exactly. one of those. That's one of those. Like, oh, like it seems simple on the face of it. Yeah. No, it's then you start trying no, to answer. I'm it. just like looking up. Tupac lyrics and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Tupac again. Well, well, we take it seriously, right? And that's why we we haven't mentioned it yet. But but Adam, you really queued up this conference that we're doing, the Joy and Justice Conference. You queued it up well, Adam, when you were talking about just interacting with the team and how it felt like a community where this is me putting words in your mouth, but where you can breathe again, where you feel safe, right? Where you you find some kindred spirits, and that's like the whole vibe of this conference. Is I think there are a lot of people out there, black, white and across the racial and ethnic spectrum who are feeling a sense of alienation from the faith community that they know. That could be historic, that could be present, but they grew up with thinking and believing something about their faith community. But now with all the stuff that's happening in the world, particularly around issues of justice and race, they're thinking, maybe this isn't what I thought it was, or maybe it's exactly what I thought it was, but I don't think that way anymore. And so, I mean, the metaphor I'm always talking about is Campbell Robertson of the New York Times had this great article called A Quiet Exodus about Black Christians quietly leaving their predominantly white churches over particularly the 2016 election. That's not just black people. That's, that's, that's people of all different races and ethnicities I've found. Okay. So there's been this quiet exodus or that's still happening, but now there's the wilderness wandering. And so now a lot of us feel sort of lost that we're looking for community. We're in between. And this gathering is an opportunity to come together in a space where they're going to be people with similar experiences and similar mindsets. And all that's a setup to say, this is also 
going to be a conference where I think it will feel safe for people. I know that has a whole connotation, you know, safe spaces, whatever. But really, I think in this sense, it's helpful because so many conferences in the past few years I've gone to that have been Christian, I've sort of been sitting in my seat with my guard up, kind of waiting for a speaker or another participant to do something or say something racist. <laughs> and like, not on purpose, obviously, but because they're just not as cognizant or aware or as far in this journey. And that's exhausting because you go to a conference to be filled up. You don't want to go and be on your guard. And so I think for people who have had that sense, even in church, you, you may feel that this is going to be a conference where you can actually just put your shield down and sit back in the seat and be filled, also contribute in other ways, be a support to other people and, and go there without, without feeling like you need to cringe at every other speaker. I think it's a place of healing. It can be a place of healing for people. I like how you define sort of the audience of this thing as sort of like people who are feeling a little bit at odds with sort of the, maybe the mainstream, what what people see as the mainstream evangelical church, or maybe just the mainstream church. I don't know. I don't. Is that is that sort of an accurate account of? Because I think you know the elephant in the room here is you're you're talking to a predominantly white audience right now. I, I would expect. Hi. Um, yeah. And they're listening to this. I think they're asking a lot of questions right now that apply to them, which is one, is this conference something I would enjoy? Is this a conference I'm supposed to go to? Is this a conference? Like if I do go to it, what, what am I, how am I supposed to, what's my posture supposed to look like? And, and those are questions I'm interested in you guys addressing because yeah, because I'm probably included in that audience. Adam, how would you address that question? Well, uh, no, uh, I think it. I think I mean, it, there's there's a tension, right, between creating a safe space and then creating a space that is open to a broader audience and a, a more varied yeah. audience. And I mean, first of all, definitely every everyone is welcome. You know what I'm saying? Like we we are Christians. We are Christians first and foremost, and we're all created in the image of God. There's there's not a there's not a space that everybody is not welcome to. I I definitely think like Kumal Nanjani, the actor uh, and comedian, he had a quote about movies becoming more diverse, where people were like, "Well, I just can't like relate to them," you know, da 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 da, because whatever. And he was like, "Every person of color since the beginning of film has related to movies that you know what I mean." Like, I wanted to be Ferris Bueller. I was a you know a black kid from <laughs> South Florida and being like, "I want to be." Ferris, I want to be Zach Morris of Safe by the Bell. You know what I mean? So I think it's healthy to begin to build that muscle to reverse that. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like, oh, this, is, this isn't like necessarily maybe someone who looks like me or someone who has my same experiences, but I can still glean and learn and still grow greatly. You know what I mean? And that is that the question in and of itself is a part of the problem. Like, why do we feel like if the space isn't predominantly one way, if the, if it's a, if it's a, minority group that oh I, that means i can't you know whatever and it's like no because that's what you know what i mean that's what every person of color is doing every day yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. like i wouldn't be able to i wouldn't be able to get on a metro train <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> if i was just like this isn't for me you know what i mean so it's <laughs> right. just like they're yeah. not i know. obviously don't belong yeah, here yeah, exactly yeah. you know we we're all out here going to college and and going to events and watching movies and listening to music all the time it's just a recentering a reshifting of what the center is and i think as we begin to build up that 
muscle. It, it's like with anything, the more you do it and expose yourself to it, the more comfortable you get with it. And the, and that is mainly the problem because people don't have a problem listening to rap music. They don't have a problem watching the NBA. You know what I mean? And they don't have a problem in knowing like, hey, this isn't my, ex-, you know what I mean? Like, this isn't my experience and I'm not necessarily going to give notes to Kendrick Lamar on how to be Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> you know, what I mean? but like building that muscle, I think is important for us as a body of Christ. You know what I mean? And I think it leads to the reconciliation that we're ultimately like working towards. So we've always said specific does not mean exclusive. So we are the witness, a black Christian collective. So we have a specific audience in mind as we record podcasts, as we select blog post topics, and 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 as we put together a conference. All of our speakers so far are Black. That's somewhat purposeful, right? Like we want to make sure that we're hearing from people in our racial and cultural communities that we don't always get a chance to hear from. And we are hoping and praying for a plurality of Black people what often happens this is just this is just real talk so i don't know if some is this somebody's first time listening to the podcast <laughs> this is just jamar talking yeah. if you want to get mad at somebody get yeah. mad at me um <laughs> but the reality is you know even conferences or or events that are put on and even for black people often because of numbers and interest i don't think it's always a bad thing but get outnumbered by white people in terms of the constituency there so we're working really hard to make sure black people know about this conference and can come because i i, I really think that as we plan the topics and invite the speakers that we have black people in mind so i really think it'll resonate with black folks but i think it'll also be very very helpful for anyone to attend. So what I would say to somebody who's not sure, who's not black and not sure if they can come, number one, you can come. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're welcome to do so. Number two, when you come, be prepared not to be the center. <laughs> and and what that means is there may be songs, there may be vernacular, there may be illustrations, there may be traditions that you're not familiar with. And and all I can say is welcome to the club because black people do that all day, every day. Even for people who have been paying attention to race and justice for a while and they haven't been to an event like this, that may be something new and a bit uncomfortable. So gird your loins. And then lastly, if you can't come or or you're still not sure you should come, you Which can you still should. support. <laughs> yeah, you can. Absolutely. I mean, we are definitely trying to make this a place where Black people are not re-traumatized. And so that's high on our priority, which may feel different for, for somebody who's not Black. All that being said, if, if you are not sure you want to come or you just can't come logistically, then donate, support. You know, one of the realities is that being a Black-led organization is we don't have access to the institutions that have money, whether that's the big historic churches or the large Christian nonprofit or or whatever it might be. And so we're we're scraping together everything we can. And that's just, you know, one of the many effects passed down to us from race-based chattel slavery is that black people haven't been able to build institutional and generational wealth like other institutions. For example, HBCUs compared to predominantly white colleges and universities can go on down the list. So that's a reality we're dealing with. And if this stuff sounds good, if you think it's helpful for the church, then you can always visit joinjustice.com and and uh, give a financial contribution. We've sort of like skipped across this a little bit, but like I want to drill down a little bit that with it seems like the best analog to what you're doing here with the conference is, is sort of what you were have been doing from the beginning with the Facebook group, right? So I'm curious what lessons you've learned from that Facebook group that you're now getting to apply to this conference directly. Yeah, can you speak to that a little bit? 
how I've seen it transform in the past two years or so that I think applies directly to the conference is this idea of the implication and the, the highlighting of the joy aspect of of this whole journey. I think for a long time, and like I said, Jamar, correct me if I'm wrong, I get the feeling that everything was like informational and it was like serious and it was like deep dives. And then sometimes like if you look in the group now, it's just people posting stuff to cut up with yeah. each other. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And, and that has always been a part of like a survival technique of being black in America is just having these moments of just joyous reprieve. I was, I was actually talking to a homie the other day about the happy birthday song. Uh, Cause you have like happy birthday to you, happy uh -huh. birthday to you. And then you have like the black happy birthday song. Uh -huh. um, and I was like, the wild thing about the black happy birthday song is it's not even about the person whose birthday it is. You mm. know what I mean? You don't say their name. You don't say their age. <laughs> it's all of us tribally celebrating. Oh, that's fascinating. Making it together. I've you know never I mean? heard that. I don't newness. know this song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the no. Stevie Wonder. The version. Stevie Wonder. Yeah, it's yeah, a Stevie yeah, Wonder. Uh, happy birthday. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. That's Which great. has a very important history connected to the Martin Luther King Jr. national holiday, but we won't get into that. But that's a, that's the perfect illustration, actually, Adam, because here it is, the struggle for justice. All right, Martin Luther King, one of the greatest 20th century leaders of the Black freedom struggle, assassinated for talking about the beloved community. We need to, as a nation, commemorate his life by making his birthday a national holiday. And so that struggle for justice, but at the same time, you got Stevie Wonder, an incredible artist and, and, and musician who's also Black, creating a song that has become embedded in the culture, like a cultural cornerstone. And it's so much fun now when we bust that, like we'll sing the other happy birthday song. And then somebody's like, all right, Stevie, Stevie Wonder version. Yeah, it's like and five and six and seven, out. eight, right? Yes. <laughs> exactly. And then you come in with it. Yeah, but that, and that's, that's to me, I think something, a lesson that I feel like has sort of begun to permeate more within the Pastor Mike community or, or the Facebook group community of just balancing is like diving into the, it's so heavy. It's such hard work. You know what I mean? And you gotta, you gotta have those moments of, of just celebration. And, and I think culturally we have created a formula that is really great thing that black people do on the internet. It's hilarious. I don't know how oh it my happens. Goodness. Uh, it's, it's great. There's just so much good stuff, but yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think we are applying some of those same sort of cultural percentages and breakdown of like what we do to like how the group works. And I, and I think the conference will reflect that. I'm really excited and, and personally working very hard on presenting presenting some of the elements of the black experience and, and what it means through different mediums to be a, a, a black person in general and a black Christian specifically super excited about sharing that with people. You know what I mean? Cause it's, it's more than just, it's just more than just what probably is commonly associated with, you know, the idea of justice. It's, it, it's a little different. And joy, you know, so, so the reason why it's joy and justice is like I said before, there's been this turn from talk about racial reconciliation to more talk about racial justice. And so there are conferences on that books on that conversations on that, which is all really valuable and needed, but that tends to be where the conversation stays. And we don't get to the Stevie wonder, happy birthday version, the joy version, the cultural creation version. But one of the things that Tyler, my co-host on past the mic is really good at pointing out is that joy is not just like smiling and laughing. And, and the reality is, you know, a lot of people may come there and that's just not where they are. And it's not some, some place we want to force them to be. We consider joy to be freedom. 
which would be the freedom to express the range of emotions common to the human experience. So if you need to weep, if you need to mourn, if you need to just sit in silence and sort of take it all in, like there's space for that there. My hope and prayer is that people leave this conference with a sense of catharsis. Whatever they had inside them that they feel they couldn't let out before, they can let it out here. It's so interesting to me that the sort of physiological feeling after a good laugh or a good cry is so similar. It's it's this feeling of being empty, but it's this satisfied empty, this this full emptiness. You know what I'm saying? Like whatever I just did, I had to do. And now that I do it, I feel so much better. And that's what we mean by joy. I want to talk lastly about your hopes and dreams for the witness. What what do you want? What do you guys like want the witness to look like in 10 to 20 years? Yeah, wow. I, sub- I submit myself to the authority of Bishop. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to know what you, you should have said. I want to be president. <laughs> Gunning for me. He's, he's got a he's got a coup going. No, I actually I'm very curious, Adam, to 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 get your impressions as somewhat newer to the organization and with fresh eyes. Yeah. What you think? trajectory is in my heart i i see the witness sort of like in the way that i see just like national geographic just like a body of work as far as written tv shows documentaries and things like that that sort of are giving history elucidating theology and 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 great and just great gospel and reconciling people to the image of God, reconciling people to each other, but then also just like doing a great work that just really shows the black experience as Christians through just a various, various media platforms. That's what I would like to, for it to ultimately be. Beautiful. Yeah. Can you write that down in a master plan? Yeah, man. Just put that out in a five-year Trademark plan. all of that. So if somebody <laughs> out here, you got you a little Facebook group, you trying to do something cute. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> Yeah, just to build on that, Adam's exactly right. One of the things that I continue to want to be true of the witness is that we leave a record. So myself as a student of history, it's all about the sources. It's all about being able to go back in history and find the writings, the events, the individuals who were standing up for justice. And so should the Lord tarry that long, historians 50 years from now, I want them to be able to look back at the witness and our blog and our podcast and our events and get a snapshot of what Black Christians in the 21st century were thinking about, how they were talking about race and justice and Christian identity. And so we want to leave a record. So that's one thing that we want to continue to do. The other thing is this, it feels weird, but probably this podcast is the most I've ever talked about money <laughs> as it as it relates to the witness, because we literally did this thing from 2011 up till now with no revenue, no budget to speak of. It's just a bunch of us spread out literally across the country and even international shout out Elodian in Toronto, Canada with laptops and, and passion, right? Like nobody gets paid. Like we just, we just do this because we think it's important. God has had to sort of crush my pride in planning this conference and humble me to ask for support, financial support. And I hate doing that. It's just, you know, it just feels, you know, even talking about it still feels like that. But at the same time, what we've been able to do with nothing compared to what we've been able to do with just a little money is just breathtaking. Like this team from Adam to Tyler to Bo to everybody who who we've got on the team is amazing. And the people who support us, who read the content, who listen to the podcast are amazing folks. What I'm what I'm hoping for in the next several years is actually a budget. <laughs> if we had a six-figure budget, my goodness, the content we could produce, 
the voice we could be, the changes we could make. I think what we could do on a national level is present in a very compelling way the reality that there is more to Christianity than an ultra-conservative white evangelical form of Christianity. There's more to Christianity than the Jerry Falwells and the Franklin Grahams, which Christians, we all know, but when you look at the media, it doesn't seem that way. But I think with the people that we already have connections with, with the content that's coming out from these folks, we can present a vision for faith in the 21st century that is closer to, you know, the Beatitudes, that is closer to this magnetic presence that Jesus had whenever he encountered anyone. And and I'm not saying we have the monopoly on that by any means. I just think we can catalyze that through multimedia and through personnel in a way that's very timely if we have the resources. So that's one of the things I could go on and on. We need to produce scholarship. We need to be writing books. We need to continue to gather and assemble and get people together in person so that they get a taste of this community. We need to mobilize politically. And I'm not talking about partisan politically, but I do mean politically. I think voting rights is a huge issue that Christians of any sort of partisan leaning should be able to get behind democracy small d, right? I think criminal justice reform is a massively pressing issue. Healthcare, all of these things that in in my view should be part of what it means when we pray the prayer that kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so how can we as the witness sort of catalyze and mobilize behind that? Follow-up question to that. And forgive me for the phrasing of this question. The last part of what you just said made me wonder, do you th- would you think of the witness as like a lobbying organization in some sense? I think of it more as a as an organizing organization. So so how can we sort of channel this incredible political power? meaning votes, namely, but also organizational and resource power that that is there among Christians in the United States. How can we mobilize that for justice? And so I don't know what that looks like quite yet for the witness. It could be us highlighting organizations that are already doing the work and pointing people there. It could be us starting a different nonprofit that is more politically engaged and has that expressly as its mission, but that appeals to Christians because we're doing this from a faith-based perspective, but we're also doing this with full knowledge of the history and the sociology and the reality of the landscape of what we're dealing with today out in the real world. What I'm thinking is, is how can the witness, given our our composition and our identity best serve the cause of justice, particularly in terms of racist policies and changing those. So that's a conversation that needs to be fleshed out. But the next step would be getting all the right people in the room and and having that conversation. So if anybody wants to host us for a retreat, let us know. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Well, there's a room people can go to in October. Yes. It's called the Joy and Justice Conference. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. 